Welcome to the Tearsheet Podcast. I'm your host, Tearsheet's Editor-in-Chief, Zach Miller. The following is part of a new series we're running. It's called The Big Bank Theory, and it's all about the future of banking. We see three options going forward. In the march towards digital, people will gravitate towards the digital arms of incumbent banks, give their business to new upstart challenger banks, or the biggest opportunity, which is bank with the brands they love. Through embedded finance, people are increasingly turning to companies they frequent often. Could be a big retail player like Walmart or SMB accounting software like QuickBooks to plan, store, and move money around. The following series includes content from Tearsheet's The Big Bank Theory Conference, held in November 2021. We had three full days with the top companies and professionals defining what banking looks like today and into the future. We heard from large incumbents like Bank of America and startups like Current. Square is one of the next generation technology companies that is absolutely part of the fabric of the future of banking. With the seller ecosystem of millions of merchants and the popularity of its consumer cash app, Square received a banking license in 2021. I spoke with Luke Voilis, the firm's newly appointed general manager of banking. I've spoken to Luke in the past, where he led into its foray into embedded finance and lending. We discussed Square's roots and ethos, diving into the firm's founding story. Luke shares where the firm sees opportunity to provide financial services for its users, now and into the future. Here's my talk with Square's Luke Voilis. Good morning. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we hear you fine. Thank you for joining us. Today. Yeah, happy to be here. I know it's early, so I appreciate, uh, appreciate the attendance. I mean, it's daylight savings time helps a lot by an hour, but I'm generally up like on the bike before the kids get up. And so it's just, this is taking my cycling time, but that's okay. Okay. Well, appreciate we're taking your cycling time. I'm excited, Luke, to hear from you again. We've spoken quite a few times over the years and uh, you're in a new role. And, um, but before we get into the role, I want to, I want to hear more about your background. And um, I know you spent time in private equity and before you made the jump to fintech. So Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your journey to Square um, and sort of how that informs what you're working on now. Yeah, I mean, I, the way I've described it is that I'm effectively a victim of the credit cycle. Um, <laughs> I graduated um, just before the or just after, actually, the, the tech bubble burst last time with a, with a BA in computer science, trying to become a programmer um, and pretty tough job market at the time. And so that like this is like this is basically a look back story of, OK, I didn't really make any of these decisions. Everything kind of decided for me or the world decided for me. But there was this decision tree of stuff. Um, and I, I picked I picked law school like I wanted to know how things worked. Uh, figured I'd go try that. Um, the disappointing thing after being there in the first semester is that like I, I I'm not going to be a good lawyer, like I'm not going to be happy. It's not going to work. And so I decided to do the joint program so that opened up another like whole tree of, of choices, which is, okay, I'm going to have the MBA too. Um, then during the MBA year, applied for a bunch of internships and happened to get like a, a small hedge fund in Texas, took a shot on me uh, to, to be their intern. And that opened up a whole new slew of, okay, there's some, a bunch of investment paths that just opened up here. So I'll, I'll take one of those. Graduate call it a year before, just over a year before the global financial crisis, like graduate grad school. And so, hedge fund blows up, like world is falling apart. Um, and so that, that really dictated what the next, what, what most of the bulk of my career was, which is I, I was a distressed investor, like special sits, distressed investor, 
seeing all the stuff that the, the banks, like all these, all these loans that the banks made and either did wrong or did right, or all these other fintech companies or like specialty finance companies that with all these assets, like every type of cash flow you can imagine, like we, we looked at over time. Um, and so that really was most of my career, like seeing like li literally taking a team, renting some scanners, going into a file room at a bank. Like this is where, like, this is where my mind starts to blow up with fintech versus like traditional banking. And like, filtering through the loan files, the paper loan files, scanning them into a digital form to get it off to our partner that's going to help us underwrite these things. Um, and it's just, it's mind blowing how far things have come, like even in 10 years for a lot of these smaller banks that like, still have paid, like loan files in boxes and rooms. Um, and so that was, that, that was that career. Like, but then like the cycle gets better. Like we, we went into like the most benign, like eight or nine years of credit for over a long time. And so you can't really do much distress. So I spent a bunch of time the last few years in private equity trying to lend money to the lenders, um, looking at the 50 year old factoring companies and merchant cash advance companies that are great. They have 20 basis points of losses, but it's completely manual and paper-based. Like then you have the FinTechs that are like amazing customer experiences, but not much operational experience or credit experience. So you see all of this full spectrum, like underwriting 20 or 30 different platforms. And then another kind of happenstance event got me in back into tech. Like I wanted to be wanted to be the tech guy when I graduated undergrad, didn't work out, but finally got back to it years, years later, we're into it, wanted to like, wanted to help building out their lending business. Um, and so Alex, ran to Alex Chris in the offices at TPG Capital, and he recruited me to come help build the, the lending business into it. And that five years at Intuit was another amazing like product learning experience for me. Intuit's amazing on that side, right? To very customer focused um, to then take, take the, the distressed background, add the tech to it, and then had the opportunity to join Square um, a, a few months ago. So I've been at Square for about three months now. And what attracted me really is, is the, the, the purpose of Square. Like we want to be, we want to open up financial services to all of these underserved companies, like small businesses and, and consumers. Like we want it to be fair, accessible and inclusive. And then it, it's exciting to get up and go to work every day, knowing that you're really helping people that wouldn't otherwise have access to um, to these financial services across the spectrum globally, right? Like we're not just in the U.S. Um, so that's like where I am now. We have an amazing team. We're one of the largest um, small business alternative lenders in the U.S. And we're growing as fast as we can. We're trying to help as many customers as we can. And Luke, how do, how do you think um, that sort of traditional slash non-traditional background um, influences, I guess, your approach to, to what you're doing today? It's, it's, it's actually comforting to, to know that you've seen a lot of the ways things have gone wrong. Mm -hmm. And so when you're, when you're looking at the possible paths forward again on the business too, like I'm constantly looking over my shoulder. Okay. What is plan B? What is plan C for each of these possible outcomes where we're headed? Like when you go through cycle, you have to know, and you have to be driving the ship in a way that actually will make it through the storm, so to speak. And so I think it's extremely helpful to have seen so many things that have gone wrong over time, like, and, but, and also have the tech and like, so it's, it's just a balance, like to, to find the balance between like, let's go grow and let's go, let's go be an amazing tech company. And let's, let's be a, let's a, like a solid, like prudent financial services company at the same time. Like if the ones, the neobanks and the new startups that can strike that right balance, I think will be the ones that succeed. If you don't like it's, it's the end for some, right. And we saw a few fail in the last cycle, right. Yeah. Um, you know, on our podcast, we've done almost four or 500 episodes and, and I don't think it's uncommon to, that a, a senior executive like yourself has has a background or not, you know, sort of a, a winding road to where they got to. Ha, have you seen that as well? Like, have you do you see a lot of your peers, I guess, um, get to where they are, you know, sort of having things happen to them the way you described it? 
I, I guess there's a bit of a diaspora from TPG, like a bunch of really smart investors from TPG have now spread because the main office was in San Francisco. And so you get you get that like solid risk DNA into companies like Open Door and others. But you see, you can see it right now, like Open Door is doing great and Zillow's not. And it's because the DNA from the investors are actually helping them succeed, I think. And so yeah, yes, in some sense, there's a lot of people on the New York side that are trying to get into FinTech and it can be hard because if you're not a product person, it's it's tough to break in. So like I like I came in kind of sideways as well, but but I think that I think it's starting to merge, right? Like those people, it's not that exciting sometimes to go like and buy a bunch of mortgages um, and have to like kick people out of their house, right? That's that's not a fun thing to go to work for. So it's there's actually a pretty big draw to be excited to be be excited to be at work and help people. And like, I think FinTech and like the story of FinTech for good is starting to pull people in. Like we can really actually help people with this and it's fun to be at work every day. So yes, in some sense, yes, I'm seeing that. Totally agree. Um, so let's jump into Square. Um, I know Square just recently uh, got a banking charter, but you've been in business banking and financial services for a few years now. So can you talk about, um, I guess, what led up to this point to, to, to offer these these uh, financial products and how you approach providing something different. Yeah, I think it's helpful just to hit the the founding story real quick. If you haven't read Innovation Stack by Jim McKelvey, it's a great book. And don't skip the footnotes because the wit the wit is sort of buried in the footnotes in some sense. It's a pretty funny read. It's a great read. Um, but it, if you go back, like the viral growth of Square was because they just opened up financial services to every small, tiny like seller at a farmer's market that wanted to, to sell whatever they were selling and, and accept credit cards. It was a really a way to kind of push the boundaries of the system, like the card rules, the way everything worked to say, hey, we'll just become the merchant and then we'll let you process with this amazing little unique thing that lets you just process and every the POS becomes the phone. That, that is the beginning of the same consistent story of, of being fair, accessible, and inclusive across the entire spectrum. And so that was the first customer pain point. So the banking products the, like, just follow pretty naturally, right? If you, if you, the way it's all set up, if the folks in the space know, like the processor puts the money into an account, and then the like, Square has to then just move the money out to the customer's bank account is where, how it all started. And it can take a couple of days to get the money, right? And, because, and really the reason is ACH. Um, ACH is a, there's no confirmation that the money got there. And so the banks, the customer's bank will sit on the money for two or three days to make sure they actually got the money. And so there's a major pain point. Of, okay. Yeah. I just, I just did a sale. If I got paid cash, I could walk to the next stall and spend it, but I just got paid with credit card and I have to wait three days to get the money. And so naturally, okay, how do we solve that problem? Um, one, let's use the debit rails. Let's push through the debit rails to get the money instantly into the other account. And that is confirmed like the money you know the money's there and so the banks will release it immediately so instant access to money is one new product the other is okay great like we have the customer here let's just give them a debit card if they if they don't already have access to the financial system if we're the first thing that they got let's give them the card too and let them have access to spending their money uh, through the debit rails directly like here's your debit card it's attached to the balance account that we have for you and you can spend your money instantly you can process a card go to the next stall and swipe your card with the next square vendor and just keep on going and so like that's that's the next layer down. And then the, the third, I guess the third product really is, is loans, right? So customers are processing a bunch of transactions over time. They want to grow their business. They need to buy more inventory. And it's a natural fit to say, okay, great. Like we, we have perfect visibility and validity on the data from revenue coming in from at least one channel, which is your credit card revenue channel. And we can lend against that revenue flow, like a very special sits type, like, like here, here's the cash flow stream, very predictable. 
here's your money based on that. Um, you don't need credit um, to talk like like personal or consumer credit to underwrite that. You need the cash the historical cash flows to do it. So you can actually open up um, pretty dramatically to, to large populations that aren't served otherwise. And so that's really the like that's this kind of the start of a lending business. So I think we've done nine billion dollars in loans to date. The average size is less than seven thousand dollars. So it kind of shows you um, it shows you how like how impactful that is. Like small loans to so many customers um, that's really helping them. And so that's the kind of pre bank type products we had. So I'm I'm curious. Um, I guess from the early days, was it clear that that Square would head in this direction towards financial products? I mean, like I, I, the answer is I wasn't there. Right? <laughs> um, from from the outside, it's logical, right? If you look at if you this this kind of goes back to the embedded banking uh, versus non-embedded banking. Like the hardest thing, like when I was looking at uh, in private equity, looking at the financial services or specialty finance companies to see like which ones we should be lending money to or make, like making equity investments in. The two hardest things to do are acquiring customers at a cost that makes sense and getting a consistent data set. Um, that you can automatically underwrite and operationally efficiently underwrite and get paid back, right? And so, all of these like in, like companies that have data and customers, like logically, from my perspective, like maybe in hindsight, yes, it makes perfect sense, but it's hard for me to speak for Square when I wasn't there. Like when you read when you read Innovation Stack, like it's not really on the it's not on the radar. It's more of mm -hmm. like let's figure out the customer problem and solve it. It's not it's not a broader top-down strategic thing here. It's it's bottoms up. Like what are the customer problems and what problems do we want to solve? And so it naturally is coming out because those are the customer pain points. Yeah, I get that how these would sort of follow, you know, servicing the customer deeper. Um, I'm also curious, and I know, again, I know you're only there three months, but um, look, obviously, you know, to run banking, they, they came to you outside the company and brought you in. Is there sort of an ongoing, um, I guess, import of, of different types of skills as Square moves further into financial products? Um, I think the answer is yes. If you look at if you, like the, the story of innovation stack is that we're kind of pirates and scrappy and we're going to make this work and we're going to make it happen. But when you get to a multi-billion dollar a year level of business and like, like billions and billions of GPV, like you have to grow up a bit, right? And so I think there's a, you, you want to strike the balance where you have the, the right leadership that can help like steer the ship and keep the same kind of bottoms up um, I don't know, innovation that, that Square has and is. And so like, that's that's the balance that they're trying to strike. So yes, like you see more more expertise coming in, but really doing it in a way that doesn't slow down innovation if possible. And that's the hard part. And obviously the launch of Square Banking, uh, you guys went deeper into banking. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the initial offering and how they build off of the, those three other components that you described previously? Yeah, sure. So if you if you think about what I described before, really, you're only talking about one way to get money in and two ways to get money out. So you have the credit card receipts are the only money coming into the account. Um, the instant transfer and ACH out is one way to get it out and a debit card is the other money out. And mm -hmm. so naturally speaking, if people want to use if this is the only business bank account they have. They want to use they need an account and a routing number so they can actually put money in from other sources or, or pay bills or do other things with with this account where the money is sitting and so it's natural to say okay let's add an account and routing number and turn it into a real checking account and let them do everything you can with a normal checking account um, and so that naturally that that, that naturally follows right um, and then you 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 go forward then and say okay what are the pain points of these businesses again like just let's revisit let's revisit this and it's okay I'm 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 a seller I'm I'm selling stuff and I got to pay taxes every quarter 
So how do I like save this money? And so it's okay, let's let's set up a way to automatically the same way we deduct our payments out of the cash flow and make it super easy for the customer to not even have to worry about the payments on the loan. You can say, okay, well, you can automatically save a percentage of every sale um, and set it in a way that, that it's gonna match the taxes you owe at the end of the year. So you create folders, and one of those is a, a savings folder for, for taxes. And so then you create an actual savings account. And because we have, we got a charter in March, um, we have Square Financial Services, we can issue a, an actual savings account to our customers. Uh, and so you add the savings account to go forward. Um, and so really it's, it really just like adds the extra features of banking, right? And so when you, when you, we're a bank, we can call ourselves a bank, right? And so we, we rebranded as Square Banking in the US. We have what was Square Capital is now Square Loans. We have Square Checking, which is the debit card and others, and we have the Square Savings. So like those, those core features of actual banking we have now. So it really evolved from one way to get money into an account and out to your own bank account to like slowly adding all these features. And now you actually have a full suite of like kind of basic features for banking at this point um, uh, for the customer and solving like, but, but with some, with some slick automation of like, yes, you can, you don't have to think about the loan payments. You don't have to think about the savings. It like starts to make things really easy for you. And I know it's early days still, but like, how much were you hearing from customers um, that this is what they wanted? Is this a case where like they were actually saying, could you put these together for me? Or is this type of thing that small businesses, you know, they didn't necessarily have the language or even the vision to, to say, this is what I need. And you guys were able to do that based on what you were seeing. I, I guess I'm curious about the push versus pull here from the customer voice. Yeah, I mean, you have a, you have a million customers, you have millions of customers and yeah. there are subsets that, that especially the ones that don't have access to financial services, they're asking for this explicitly. So we, we we're dumping the, all of the customer success information into a place where we can actually do machine learning on it and figure out like themes of what's going on. And yeah, these themes come out. Like I, this is the only business account I'm using and I need more features. Like I need to do these things. Like I need to do mobile check deposit, right? Like there's all, all everything. It just keeps like piling on and on and on. And as, and as we have larger and larger sellers, there's going to be more needs for them to say, okay, I'm actually a bigger company. I need these other features. And so we have roadmaps that are trying to solve all these problems for all these for these customers. And it really is kind of bottoms up driven. We have these team of peers concept where the sprint teams are very close to the customers and they know what they need and they build the roadmaps from the bottom up. And so we just got through annual planning and it's really the sprint teams in the bottom that are driving what they know their customers need that then bubbles up to what we go do. And so it is very much customer driven. Got it. Um You've also talked about accessibility and, and, and Square's ability to reach traditionally underserved populations. Um, what makes that possible? And um, how can others in the industry, I guess, expand uh, their approach to serve these customers? Yeah, I mean, I talked a bit about it before, right? We, we have a loan product. I'll use that as the example. We talk, I talked about payments already. Um, we became the merchant. We like under, we underwrite the customers and onboard them, and so the bank doesn't actually have to on the outside. That's processing the cards, and so you opened up a whole bunch of access for the loan product, which is the harder piece I think to do. Um, we're not. We're really just using that cash flow data, like this twelve months of historical credit card processing data. And if you only use that, then there is no discrimination. The business speaks for itself. Right, it, it, they have these cash flows. We can fully, pretty, pretty well predict what the cash flows are going to look like for the next 12 months, and the customer doesn't have to think about paying us back because we're holding a bit of um, every every credit card transaction that comes into their business. They're paying back a bit of their loan each time. That removes the discrimination component and removes mm -hmm. the, the the fair lending pieces. Like I, I've been through fair lending reviews where um, it shows yes, you have a bit of discrimination. However, um, it's determined it's because of FICO, and that's okay. 
Like that, that just rubs me the wrong way. Like we don't use FICO at all. Like we're, we're not seeing that before we enter. I guess we have some portfolio management on the back end where we look at it and see what it looks like to see what the risks look like. But on the, on the front end, um, we, we don't need it. And it actually allows us to open up dramatically to broader populations. Same thing on KYC, KYB. A lot of the KYC, KYB automation to just, just the basic onboarding to the financial services account can be blocked if you're a thin file customer. If you don't have a credit file in the US, it can be hard for you to actually access the financial services system. So anything that like, there's a lot of startups around the space trying to figure out how to find alternative data sets that are not like give to get slow, like you don't have to have like, the, the whole problem with this is you have to have a loan to get a score and you have to have a score to get a loan. So there's just, mm -hmm. there's just catch 22 that people get stuck in and any alternative data sets we can get. I think the bureaus are all over this as well. Like how do we use bank transaction data to say, okay, like this is actually a quality customer and they should have access. Um, and so it's just breaking down those barriers over time. And our product naturally does that. We don't need FICO. We don't need the credit score to actually make these lending decisions for these small businesses. And it really opens it up. I think the one stat that we're the most proud of is that 51% of the loans we make are to women-owned businesses. If you wow. look at the comparable, like there's not much data here, um, but there are some pushes now to get more data with 1701 and we're supportive of that. Um, but like the SBA data that you can see shows that 17% of the loans they make. So 51%, like we're very close to the demographics, right? With the loans we're making. And that's amazing mm -hmm. to be able to say like, look, we're just, we're just lending to almost everybody based on the history of their business. And, and so the more, I guess, the more these embedded uh, financial services companies can use the data they have, they already know their customer, but use that more and use the other like like other sources that you would normally use less to try to let more and more people come in. You can you can just use both too to make sure you're covering the risk, but like like really lean into the alternative data sets to see who actually should have access because they're, these are great customers. They're paying us back. It's it's a it's a good business. The unit economics makes sense, and we're not using FICO. Um, and so I think it's, I think it's just a mindset of, we really want more and more customers to come in and have access. And if you are creative and experiment your way into what might work, then it's, then, then it's great. Got it. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I definitely have a few more questions for you, Luke, but, uh, just want to remind the audience, if you guys have questions for Luke, uh, feel free to put it through the, uh, the zoom webinar Q and a button. Um, and the billion dollar question, obviously Luke, what's next for square banking? Yeah, I mean, the thing that is literally keeping me up at night right now is is how to do this in 20 more geographies, right? Square has got a big push to go international right now. Um, the Square banking team, though it's not called that everywhere, um, is live. So we're live with loans in Australia. We have instant transfer and card in Canada. Like that's all public. Um, so really, it's it's how do you how do you take these like broad feature sets we have of of products, um, the the loans, the balances with a debit card attached to it, and then maybe savings if you can do it and instant transfer. How do you, you got, it's an enormous amount of research in each market. Like, so how do we go to each of these markets that Square is already going into? Because we're naturally just an attached business. Like we have to have, we have to be in the flow of the money with, with the credit card transactions to have our loan product work, right? And so we're going to naturally follow the core payments team of Square around the world where they go. But it's not an easy thing to go figure out how to enter a market because all of those four things are regulated differently in each market and have different restrictions. And you either need to partner with a bank or get a license or figure out a way to enter the market. 
And so a lot of what we're focused on is, okay, like here's what we know our customers want. We're doing a ton of customer research in the other geographies too, to see which of those features are, are the most important to them. And so then we're building a roadmap out to decide, okay, like which, which products are launching in what order and which market and how are we going? Is it through part bank partnership or is it through getting our own licenses in some, in some sense? And so I'm pretty comfortable in the United States because I know how it all works here. Um, it's, it's fun to go try to figure it out in all these other geographies. And we have amazing teams on the ground in each space, um, compliance and the regulated entity teams. It makes it, it makes it really easy for us to go do it fast, um, with the core product team still here together. So it's a lot of like thinking international and there's a big push also to go up market. Right. And so we're thinking about, okay, how do we, how do we grow our banking services that are really focused on these underserved customers to actually help the larger businesses too. And so that's, that's the simplest way to think about like what we're, what awesome. we're focused on. Uh, we do have a question for you, Luke. Uh, you comfortable taking it? Sure. You, I guess you won't know until Simon. Simon, I'd like, I'd like, to, I'd like to bring you on screen. We've got Simon Torrance asking a question about size of the market. Simon, so if you're comfortable, please, uh, please show yourself. Yes. Hello. Hi, um, Zach. And hi, Luke. My question is this. Um, do you think ultimately you're, you are taking market share from incumbent suppliers or are you or and or are you increasing the size of the market because you're including new people? And if so, how much by how much are you increasing the market in different product areas, would you say? From like the honest answers from a strategy perspective, I would like to know the exact answer to that question, too. <laughs> the reality is it's both. Right. We, we enter a market. There are larger businesses or businesses that are actively using payment services. Maybe they're being overcharged in some markets. Right. Um, and maybe like we can offer a cheaper product, but we will take market share from them. There are other markets where it's like the U.S. is way ahead of the game with products like Squares that open it up to broader populations of customers. So I think the answer is both. And every single market we go into is going to have a different mix depending on what the actual payments infrastructure looks like and what the banks are doing in those markets for payments. Right. It's very different in different places like Japan versus Australia is very different. And so you have to look at it and think, OK, well, like, can't, can't, should we be competing with the incumbent? Should we be like opening up? And so really, it's a market by market approach. And the answer is both. And I can't tell you the exact answer to that question until about three years after we enter a market is the honest answer. Well, what about in the U.S.? Which, what about in the U.S.? What's it looking like at the moment, would you say? Um, historically speaking, when I look at just our loan, like we have 70% sole props, right? So there's populations that just really aren't served elsewhere. Um, so from my perspective, at least like this is not data to quote, um, but like we're serving populations that aren't served otherwise, but we are going up market rapidly. Right. And so we're, we're starting to eat into that space. And so if you look at the, like the investor relations stuff, they talk about it a lot and think the data there is probably the best place to go look. Great. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, Simon. Give time for uh, Simon to get off there. Um, I have another question. Um, you know, one of the things we're seeing alongside what's happening with Square is, is just this tremendous push of, of challenger banks, neo banks, digital banks, whatever you want to call them. Um, and if you were obviously jockeying to go public, and huge amounts of money have flowed into the into the sector, um, where do you think things are headed there? Like how 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 is different? How 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 do leaders emerge? I guess from this competitive um, sort of market. Who's the winner ultimately? This is like, maybe I'm biased because of my distressed background. Like I'm constantly looking over my shoulder, like on the, on the risk side. Um, what's happening is that the neobanks are coming in. They have amazing features that drive viral growth. Um, 
The problem is in order really to monetize a bank, you have to be good at lending. And that's the hardest part. It's absolutely the hardest part. So I think you have other guests that are going to speak about um, like credit focused neobanks. And so from my perspective, like they have a leg up in a sense that they figured out the credit side already because um, it's easy to make loans. And I'm sure you've heard this a bunch, but it's pretty hard to get paid back. And it's even harder to get paid back through cycle. Right. And so those those neat, like these challenger banks coming in, if they haven't figured out the lending part yet, it's just it's just not going to work. Like that's that's the where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Like, yes, you can come in with an amazing feature um, and attract a bunch of customers. But if you can't actually profitably lend, um, you're not going to be able to monetize the same way a bank monetizes. Maybe there's other revenue streams that I'm unaware of, but there's there's it's just a tough thing to do to, to, to be a financial services institution without the lending part. Um, and so you see a lot of I, I, I guess for, for me, it's. The ones that can strike the balance that, that get the viral growth, like Square has viral growth with their payments product, and we can attach to that. Like there's other neobanks that have different features, like like a couple of days early wage access, for example, to drive a bunch of volume growth. But if you can't actually monetize in a way that makes sense in a stable, a stable regulatory way too over time, there's there's risks on the regulatory side for some of this as well. But if you can't like figure out the lending part, like then then I don't think you ultimately succeed. And the valuations are absurd right now, I think, in some sense, at least in the VC space, right? With with VCs coming in, like writing $100 million checks, doing very little diligence, like at seed round, A round time, like it's kind of messing up the space. There's so much money flowing in that these ideas make it. But like when when we have the cycle again, like, I, like there's going to be some more victims of the cycle, just like my career, there's going to be some more victims of the cycle here, right? Where it'll wash out. Like, yeah, that's great. You have all these customers and you're still growing, but the unit economics don't make sense, and now you're out of money. What do you do? Um, and so like that, we'll see that happen in the next, I don't know, five. Like, I, I, I stopped trying to predict cycle, actually. Like, I'm not going to try to predict it all. Like we, 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 like, we made it through COVID. That was a unique thing. We haven't been through a recession yet, and inflation makes me worry a bit. But um, we'll see what happens. And when we actually go through the first recession, um, we'll see what happens to a lot of these neobanks. Um, I think there's going to be some, some washing out. Yeah. Um, it's all, I don't like that on the lending part from my perspective. Yeah. And I can definitely see like in the future, like at the end of your career, an illustrious career, you're going to have a, your memoir is going to be the victim of a credit cycle. So <laughs> or champion of the credit cycle, something like that. Um, I have a question coming through from Ravi. Will you, do you mind coming on screen, Ravi, to ask it? And uh, please, please introduce yourself uh, as you do. Sorry, Simon, I didn't get a chance to ask you to introduce yourself. So I'm not sure Ravi uh, has accepted it, but he had, he had a question about um, this alternative data set, how you're using revenues. You can see everything and, and you're, not, you're not using FICO. Uh, I guess his question is how has, uh, uh, he declined. So how has Square, what is Square's experience using that from a lending point of view, uh, using that data? I mean, using the, the, the alternative data? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've made $9 billion in loans and we had like amazing performance even through COVID, right? I think it's like, it's proven, it, it's, it works. Um, yes, yes, the duration of our loans extended a bit um, because like people weren't shopping because of that cr like crazy unique event. But as soon as the stores open back up, like it's automatic, like you're holding payments when they start back up. And so the portfolio just starts to perform again. It's a unique, like a, it's got a built-in, it has a built-in like stabilizer in, in a sense, right? And so it's it's performed great. Um, I think that the the data really just speaks for itself. Like we we can see we can predict 
but for things like COVID, you can predict what the future cash flows will be. Um, and you know that when the things turn back on and get better, like it's all going to come back again. So like barring another event like COVID, like we, we've, we're performing, we perform very well, even, even like recession type scenarios, like maybe the payments slow down a bit, but it's like, you still, the performance is the same. It's the duration just increases a bit. Right. Totally. We're getting, we're getting to the end of um, this discussion. I really appreciate it. I have one more question for you. Um, we've definitely seen the regulatory landscape shifting. Um, you know, s- several fintechs have pulled their charter, particularly ones from, from overseas, but what, what do you think is happening here? And, 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 what, what, what does the evolution look like about fintechs competing? Will they need a bank charter to compete effectively, essentially? Yeah, I mean, the, the U.S. is one thing, right? Like, I, I'm not sure, like, all of these charters are being pulled when they resubmit. I would be very surprised if anybody else gets one, right, given, given who has the seats now, um, who, has, who the decision makers are. Um, and so on the, on the FDIC and OCC, right? And so I don't, I don't think more charters are coming. Uh, I would be surprised. I could be wrong. I can always be wrong. Um, but like for, for us, like we, we timed it pretty well. We have it. We, we have ultimate flexibility in how we offer our products. So like we control our own entity, our own bank. Um, and if we, if we need to offer a feature that our bank doesn't do, we can use a different bank. Like the partner bank model doesn't go away for us. We, we can set it up. Like we have ultimate flexibility on how, how we go to market in the U S so to speak internationally, like we're not going to get a bank in every market. It doesn't make sense. Like most, most fintechs don't actually need the bank charter in most markets. Um, based on all the research I'm seeing now, like you can do with a bank partner, you can do everything effectively, but call yourself a bank, right? And so, like to to, to not have to to do that in some if you're going in so many markets, like you just don't need it. And so, that's that's the like the, the thing that's so cool about fintech is you can take all these pieces with partner banks, different features, like different products appear, and you're like if this is like the architecture stack, you have all these products that are plugged into this API layer, all these capabilities, and then all these partners down below, you can just connect the product. To whatever partner and whatever geography you need to offer that feature and do it in a regulatory way that like a, a way that makes sense from a regulatory and risk perspective and so really it's about building that engine that can go do this globally frankly um, and in each market yes there's advantages for having them but to, to be to get 90 percent of the way there most of the in most markets you just don't need it and it's that's a cool thing about fintech like you can put the pieces together in a way that makes sense without actually having to be a bank and fundamentally like every feature you're offering a bank is actually doing it right? They're just your partner bank. It's not you, it's your partner, but it's seamless to the customer. And so that's the difference. The customer doesn't really can't tell the difference, but for the disclosures um, and it's like, and there's a regulated bank offering this stuff. So it, sh- it should be fine from a regulatory perspective. It's just a, it's a, this is the fun part. Like you put the pieces together in a way that allows you to offer the feature set you want to your customer, right? Um, we had a couple of last minute questions. We don't have time to get into all of them, but um, if you can answer in one minute, um, David Donovan asked a question. Squares com- said that has said that it's committed to providing services underpinned by Bitcoin. Um, can you comment on that? What kind of services would Square consider? I mean, the honest answer is that that Jack has a separate team called TBD that is very focused on this stuff. And so, like, I, I like I'm not as close to that team. I'm focused on trying to make all this work with the existing financial services system we have. We're going to partner with that team to see if there are like things we can test with them, but. That, like that's the future like of, of awesome <laughs> from my perspective like to be able to do DeFi and figure that stuff out uh, alongside doing it doing it within the existing system now so it, it, it's just square story again like let's let's try to push the boundaries and figure out how to make this stuff work and make it better for people and and part of part of that push is now the whole like crypto DeFi and Bitcoin and lightning focused right 
And so all that is a kind of a parallel path that we'll be partnered and supportive on, but it's, it's, it's a different team and the, the team is amazing and they're going to go figure out some amazing stuff. And I'm going to be just as surprised at what they build as you probably. That's awesome. Luke is always great chatting with you. Luke Voiles from Square. Appreciate you sharing uh, your plans and best of luck in the future as you roll them out. Thanks Zach. It's always fun. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. That was an excerpt from Tearsheet's The Big Bank Theory Conference, held in November 2021. For more stories like this, podcasts, articles, newsletters, and conferences on the impact technology is having on the financial services industry, head on over to Tearsheet's website. Sheets website.